0: Well hello podcasters and welcome to episode number 26, the March-April edition of our Banking Litigation podcast. Uh, Hello from me in uh, in now Drizzly Dorset and hello from my co-host Kerry. Hello Kerry.
1: Hi there John, hello everyone.
0: And the thumbs up from behind uh, the glass um, from Annabelle. Hello again Annabelle. Uh, Okay, Uh, we're kicking off today's podcast with a class on class actions Uh, And we'll be starting by looking at some securities litigation decisions before we move on to class actions more generally. When it comes to securities litigation, we've really noticed an uptick uh, in recent interim judgments. uh, And that's particularly in the context of claims brought under Section 90A of FISMA. Uh, These decisions have provided some welcome clarity, I think it's fair to say, on procedural complexities associated with these claims. Uh, And with that, Manat, I will hand over to you, our guest speaker uh, for today. Welcome to talk us through the first of these cases.
2: Thanks very much, John. Um, The first decision in my deck is Allianz versus RSA, which relates to a case management decision in a Section 90A FISMA claim against RSA.
1: So just before you go further, Manat, could you remind our audience of what Section 90A FISMA claims are all about? Of course, Carrie. happy to.
2: Uh, Section 90 FISMA applies to all publications an issuer makes to the market or whose availability is announced through a recognized information service other than prospectuses and listing particulars. It provides a remedy to investors who have suffered loss when buying, selling, or holding securities in reliance on information containing an untrue or misleading statement or where there's an omission or delay in publishing that information.
0: Nice and snappy.
2: To bring a successful claim, the investor must show that they relied on the defect, which is a serious hurdle to bringing such claims. In this recent judgment, the High Court was asked to consider a split trial proposal by the parties. And the key issue up for debate was whether those tricky reliance issues that I mentioned should be heard at the first trial, or be held over to the second trial. And the outcome of the CMC was that the court agreed with the defendant that the reliance issues, issues should be considered at the first trial. Trial structure tends to be a key case management battleground in Section 98 claims, and decisions relating to split trial orders are far more significant than they may seem at first blush. And why, you might ask? Well, for a mix of both strategic and practical reasons we often see claimants seeking to postpone issues involving reliance, causation and quantum to the second trial because these are the issues that concern the conduct of the claimants. Postponement of these issues therefore leaves questions concerning the issues, issuers' alleged liability as the sole focus of the first trial, placing it right in the spotlight.
0: Well, I suppose potentially rebalancing the pressure on, on, on each party, not just on the defendant. That's very interesting, Mamat. Did the court set out its reasoning for the decision?
2: It did, John. Referring to the factors which influenced its decision, the court was of the view that an early determination on reliance may increase the chance of settlement. It also commented that questions concerning reliance are primarily factual, and so these should be determined as early as possible during the trial process.
0: If I recall properly, uh, I think it was a particularly significant Point in this case that the claimants had issued proceedings quite late in limitation period, is that right?
2: Yes, that's right, John. That factor was particularly decisive. So, in summing up, issuers can look at this judgment for support when advocating for a trial structure with a fairer allocation of the burden for preparing for trial. The wider implication is that further securities class actions might be more costly or practically burdensome for claimants to pursue given that they may be required to invest more time and costs in anticipation of being required to participate more fully in the proceedings from the outset.
1: before we move on, Mana, I'll just quickly mention that our banking litigation blog post covering this decision in greater detail is linked to in the show notes for all those who are interested.
0: Great. Well, thank you very much for that very helpful uh, summary, Manat. Um, And I'll take us now through the next uh, update in this Section 90A FISMA tutorial, which is the latest judgment in the very high profile claim uh, against Group 4S, another Section 90A case. I'm highlighting this judgment because it brings into sharp relief the need for claimants to balance the tension between, uh, on the one hand, their crucial practice of book building. and awaiting regulatory investigations, and on the other limitation periods which Mannitz just referred to. The judgment relates to a successful strikeout application brought by G4S, with the result that approximately 90% of the quantum of claims brought against G4S were struck out by the court, which had little sympathy for the claimants who had, and I'm quoting this directly, failed to get their ducks into a pen, let alone in a row, prior to the expiry of the limitation period.
2: That's quite a strong comment from the court. What exactly prompted the court to strike out the claims?
0: Well, Manu, the claims were primarily struck out on the basis that the new, claimant, the new claimants cannot be added to an existing claim form uh, under CPR 17.1. Uh, and that provision allows a party to amend its statement of case before it's been served. And that's exactly what a large number of the claimants attempted to do here unsuccessfully. The judgment also provides a helpful reminder of how and when the court will exercise its discretion to amend party names following the expiry of a limitation period.
1: I think there's a strategic point for defendants coming out of this decision, really demonstrating the importance of reviewing the legal persons listed on the claim form in a group action carefully including the date of addition and any written consent and even the spelling of names, etc.
0: I I think that's absolutely right, Kerry. I completely agree. This particular case um, is a stark demonstration of the significant impact that a successful application can have where there are technical irregularities of this kind.
1: And I believe the claimants are pursuing an appeal.
0: Yeah, that's also right. Um, So we'll keep our podcasters updated. Um, And as ever, we've got a blog post on this decision. Uh, The link again is in the show notes. Now, uh, widening our lens slightly, this next duo of cases will touch upon some significant developments relating to class actions more generally. So podcasters, you may have heard of this next case, which relates to uh, group actions brought against Royal Dutch Shell, and its Nigerian subsidiary, in connection with some alleged pollution in the Niger Delta. And while set in a non-financial context, the Supreme Court's decision on jurisdiction will be of interest, and unfortunately concern, to all uh, UK domiciled financial institutions who are at risk of parent liability claims. And the case name is Okpabi against Shell.
1: So sorry to interrupt uh, again, John, but can you provide our podcasters with a of context as to exactly what we mean by parent liability claims.
0: Yeah I'm sorry Kerry, you're absolutely right. There's a growing trend for cases to be brought in the English courts against multinational companies uh, relating to the activities of their uh, subsidiary companies abroad. I I say it's a growing trend, it has been happening um, for for many years now and these often relate to environmental or human rights issues and they're informally known. Uh, in legal press as class action tourism. Uh, And claimant firms and funders are beginning to expand their horizons for such claims, uh, seeking to bring them not only uh, in a parent subsidiary context, but also potentially arguing that a company has assumed responsibility for others in its supply chain.
1: Yes, um, this this trend is obviously an important one, therefore, for UK financial institutions to follow, uh, given their size and global footprint.
0: Yeah, exactly, Kerry, and that's why um, we're talking about it on this Banking Litigation podcast, and we're watching uh, developments in this area closely. it's going back to Okpavi, the judgment at hand. um, I won't go into detail on the facts, given the non-financial context, but the key point is that there was a jurisdictional challenge by the defendant parent and that went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court unanimously allowed the claimant's appeal holding that the English court did have jurisdiction over the claims. And there's a couple of important points to flag in the judgment. First the Supreme Court held that it was reasonably arguable that the UK domiciled Shell parent company owed a duty of care to the claimants and that decision also emphasizes that in assessing at a jurisdictional stage whether there's an arguable duty of care or by the parent the judge should not be drawn into a mini trial uh, to evaluate the factual evidence that uh, has been adduced
2: so do you think john that it will make it more difficult for future parent company defendants trying to challenge jurisdiction in these kind of cases yeah
0: i think that 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 is possible man especially given that comment around avoiding mini-trials, what the decision may constrain are future defendants from seeking to challenge the factual basis on which the, claimants are, the claims are advanced at the jurisdictional stage. And the upshot of that is that the defendants will be more vulnerable to weak and speculative claims being allowed to proceed in the English court. So one to watch, uh, and we'll keep you apprised of developments. But I'll I'll wrap that one up there. And as ever, we have a blog post on this decision and a link in the show notes. So to round off this section, I'll hand back to Manat uh, for a quick lesson on group litigation orders or GLOs, as they're known.
2: Thanks, John. My final case in this section is Weaver versus BA, which is in the context of a cyber attack on BA's electronic systems. The facts are not relevant for our purposes. However, the decision highlights some important principles relating to GLO cutoff dates in class actions. In summary, the High Court granted a modest extension to the cutoff date for claimants to join the litigation and confirmed that the costs of substantial media advertising to attract claimants will not be recoverable if the claims succeed. I guess we can divide the lessons learned from this decision into two. Firstly, the decision emphasizes the importance of cutoff dates in providing defendants with some degree of certainty as to the extent of their potential exposure in litigation. And secondly, it is a reminder that the costs of seeking to build a class of claimants for the purposes of group litigation, including the claimant firms' costs of advertising for potential clients to join the litigation, are not recoverable.
0: Well, thank you, Madam. That's very interesting. Uh, And on that, I will ring the bell to conclude our School of Class Actions for today. Uh, But we're only midway through. It's over to Kerry now for a deep dive into a case falling within one of our classic podcast categories, mis-selling. Drum roll for Kerry.
1: Well, thank you very much, John. So today I will be covering uh, Leeds City Council and Barclays. Um, in which the High Court found that a claimant's awareness of a representation is an essential prerequisite to a claim for misrepresentation. I'll give our listeners a bit of background, after all this is a deep dive, Um, uh, so here we go. It all started with the claimant local authorities entering into loans with the bank between 2006 and 2008, The interest rate payable under the loans referenced LIBOR and the defendant bank was on the LIBOR survey panel and after the LIBOR manipulation scandal surfaced, the claimants commenced an action against the bank, alleging uh, that fraudulent implied misrepresentations were made by the bank prior to their entry into the loans. In particular, the claimant said that the bank made representations to the effect that LIBOR was set honestly and properly, and the bank was not, nor had any intention of, engaging in any improper conduct in connection with its participation in the LIBOR panel.
0: Now, Kerry, I'm getting some déjà vu. Those allegations all sound rather familiar. Aren't they the same representations, perhaps, that were raised in Property Alliance Group?
1: Yes, exactly, John. Gold star to you. Um, But in this judgment, um, there was a much more detailed focus on whether the claimants could say that they were aware that the relevant representation was made, or indeed, if they even needed to prove that they were aware at all. As I said at the outset, the outcome of this decision provides confirmation that there is an awareness requirement in the context of misrep claims. So the, mis- the representee must have had some appreciation that a representation in the sense alleged was being made. Without it, a claim must fail. When you put it
2: like that, Kerry, it seems sort of obvious that a party saying that it has relied upon a representation must also be able to say that it was aware of the representation being
1: made. Yeah, that's true. But I think the healthy debate in this case and others demonstrates that the requirement for awareness has caused some controversy. Um, And now we have Leeds and Barclays, which provides welcome clarity and certainty on the issue. That's interesting. Did the court provide any
2: explanation as to what is needed to satisfy the awareness requirement?
1: Well, Manette, um, the court said that this will depend upon the precise circumstances. So in some cases, the question will be what the claimant consciously thought, while in others, it may be better expressed by a focus on whether the representation was actively present in the representee's mind or some less stringent form of awareness. But the court very clearly rejected the notion that where a representor's conduct is said to speak for itself, then an assumption based on the representor's conduct will be enough. The court said that the awareness requirement still must be satisfied in those cases too. In this context, it's worth highlighting one of the claimant's arguments here. And that was that the criminal appeal in DPP and Ray confirmed that by entering the Wing Wah restaurant and placing an order for prawn, chopped suey and rice, Mr. Ray represented that he intended to pay the 47 pence, very reasonable, uh, that the meal cost. And so the argument goes that the waiter made an assumption based on the conduct of Mr. Ray, so that there was no requirement for awareness. So that was what the court had held in DPP and Ray. But... In one of the best footnotes to a High Court judgment that I have ever read, Mrs. Justice Cockrell pointed out that the decision in Ray was not inconsistent with the awareness requirement. She referenced the famous Rodeo Drive shopping scene in the movie Pretty Woman. Um, And I quote, I don't think we have anything for you. You're obviously in the wrong place. Uh, the scene in question helpfully illustrates the point perfectly. Uh, a waiter or a shop assistant can refuse to serve a customer if they don't think they are good for the money. Uh, the conduct of the representor does not speak for itself and what is happening is more than an assumption.
0: This would explain why my wife is trying to get me out of shabby chic uh, mothies and jumpers, Kerry.
1: <laughs> Very true, I'm sure. I make no comment being able to see you on Zoom right now. Um, So so really, uh, what's required in terms of awareness will depend upon the precise circumstances. And in the circumstances of the present case, the court then had to decide the appropriate awareness requirement. Looking at the complex context of alleged representations relating to libel manipulation, the court said that this was a far cry from the type of case where the conduct could be said to speak for itself. It reflected on what was said in PAG and also in MAME, and said that these cases pointed towards a relatively stringent awareness requirement in a misrepresentation case of this type. And on that basis, the court said that it was necessary to establish awareness in the sense that the representation was actively present in the claimant's mind. As the pleaded case relied on the claimant's assumption and the claimants failed to plead awareness at all, the claims were therefore struck out.
0: This judgment really does then provide um, some welcome clarity on this aspect of a claim for misrepresentation,
2: Kerry.
1: Yeah, certainly, John. I think it highlights the difficulties that claimants will face improving reliance in order to make good a claim based on implied representations in the context of financial disputes.
0: Yeah, I agree. And that's interesting when you reflect on the fact that no claim, as far as I know, relating to LIBOR representations has been successful at full trial. I think Kerry, we've got a blog post on this case.
1: We do indeed. A link, as ever, is in the show notes.
0: Well, thank you, Kerry. Well, podcasters, there we have it. Uh, Representations, oil and class actions. Thank you very much indeed to our guest speaker this week, uh, Manat, Um, and thank you to annabelle behind the glass and kerry my co-host thank you very much for a very informative uh, session and for tolerating my moth-eaten jumpers podcasters we'll see you again in the near future i hope thank you very much